Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. As we gather for worship, as we depart from worship, and as we go into the world, we gather to serve, we depart to serve, and we serve in the world. We enter to worship and depart to serve, we also enter to serve and depart to worship. For our worshipful action is what? Is service to God. And as we come together, and as we leave, and as we go into the world, we proclaim the very nature of God and those things that we pray and we say to each other as we exhort each other, as we come together and as we collect our offering and we give thanks to God for that. Praise God from whom, what? All blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father. Son and Holy Ghost. So we do that as we come in and then as we depart, often but not always, we use the exhortation and encouragement from Paul at the end of his second letter to the Corinthians. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And as we go into the world, we then follow the Great Commission, which the Lord charged us with. And of course, that is to go you therefore and to make disciples of all nations, of all groups of people, from whatever nation and background, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost. So as we come, as we leave, and as we are engaged in ministry in the world, we proclaim the very nature of God as we understand him biblically to be as the triune Lord. We describe it as the Trinity, even though that term is not used in Scripture. And it has come under ridicule and abuse by many in past times, and even today, as being irrational, not provable, unbelievable. And of course, probably the best example of this was our third president, Thomas Jefferson. Uh, Very erudite, deist. He said this, the doctrine of the Trinity is hocus pocus, like Cerberus. Well, who's Cerberus? He was quite a classical scholar, not Cerberus, but Jefferson. Cerberus was the mythical three-headed guard dog that stood at the gates of hell to prevent people from escaping. So you see the picture there, three-headed dog. You see, he said of the Trinity, it's so incomprehensible to the human mind that no candid man can say he has any idea of it. He who thinks he does only deceives himself. He proves also that man, once surrendering his reason, has no remaining guard against absurdities, the most monstrous. And like a ship without a rudder is the sport of every wind. With such persons, that is, those that would believe in the Trinity, gullibility, which they call faith, takes the helm from the hand of reason, and the mind becomes a wreck. Ridicule is the only weapon which, we, which can be used 
against unintelligible propositions such as the Trinity. You see, it's mere abracadabra of the charlatans that call themselves the priests of Jesus. If it could be understood, it would not even answer their purpose. Yes, the doctrine of the Trinity has been ridiculed as being irrational, and from human terms, it probably isn't completely rational in the way we think of things. I would say it's not rational, it's super rational because it comes from the mind of God. You know, as we come to this point today, what, where have we come from and where are we going? We're doing a series, of course, where we are reaffirming those things that if someone is to ask us, that we are to give a reasoned response whenever they ask for evidence of the hope that is in us. We began by saying God exists, but not only does God exist, God loves you and me. We then observed that there is truth, but not only is there truth, but there is a person who is the truth, and it is the Son of God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. There are not many right views about the way to understand the world there is, and, and, and metaphysics beyond the world. There is one right view. That sounds like a very arrogant statement, but it's true. There's only one right view, and it is a biblical view of God. That is, there is only one God. He is supernatural. He is above nature. He is sovereign over all nature. As we saw the puppets display last week, he is the three omnis. He is omniscient. He's omnipresent. And he is what? All-knowing, all-powerful, and ever-present. He is creator. He made everything. And he is engaged in his creation. He sustains everything. All other worldviews differ from this. Even deism, which does proclaim that he is supernatural, they do not believe that he is sustaining in the universe and that he performs miracles. And the point about that is, all of these worldviews are mutually exclusive. There is only one that can be right. And we would suggest from the Bible that this theistic worldview is the right worldview. And it comes today, then, to our understanding, um, as we saw in the ad from last week, for this service. We come to the Christian worldview. What is the Christian worldview? Well, it differs from the other theists' worldview. The other theists, Jews and Muslims, who hold many of those principles, all those principles I just mentioned a moment ago, differ from the Christian worldview at this point of departure on the nature of God. And then we're going to see in the next few weeks, not just the nature of God, but the nature of Christ and salvation and the Holy Spirit, the nature of his church, and the nature of end times. But the first point of departure from the theistic worldview that is held by others, which is we understand to be biblical, is this doctrine of the Trinity. What, what does it mean? Well, it means what it says. It is tri-unity. That is three in one. God is three persons. They all have the same nature. And they're unified in the beingness and the essence and the nature of God. There's a unity in the Godhead. But in that unity, there includes also a diversity of roles. There is a unity. God is one. There's a unity in the Godhead. But there's also, the scripture clearly identifies, a plurality of persons. Now, we're not going to see the term Trinity, of course, explicitly stated 
in the Old Testament or the New Testament, not that term. But the concept runs through it from the very beginning, from Genesis 1 all the way to the end, Revelation 22. The source of our understanding of the nature of God as the triune God is not out of nature. It doesn't come from science. It doesn't come from philosophy or reason. It comes by biblical revelation. It comes from what he has revealed to us in the word of God, but it is not mutually exclusive from natural revelation. There are things in nature that point to this and also from science as well. But we need to understand that. It comes from God revealing himself to us about his nature, what he wants us to know about him. And it can be defended from natural revelation. And it can be defended from philosophy, but it does not originate there. The beginning point of this doctrine is our solid, absolute affirmation that God is one. There's no question about that. So we stand together as we read this affirmation that comes from Deuteronomy and ends with what our Jewish brothers and sisters call the Shema. Deuteronomy 6. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might Fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's have a seat. You see, Christian understanding in the New Testament affirms God's oneness. We affirm as his church the unity of the Old Testament and the New Testament. We still keep his law in the Old Testament inasmuch as we keep the moral code, the moral law that opposes polytheism that affirms monotheism that affirms that there is only one God that rejects idolatry not to make graven images before him and we follow the rest of course of his code of ethics and commandments we also identify Old Testament New Testament unity from this standpoint we affirm the I am of the Old Testament that is Yahweh Jehovah the I am is none other than also the Lord God Almighty in the New Testament who also manifested himself in his glory in his son Jesus Christ, who is the I Am. We affirm the oneness of God in Jesus' teachings. He kept the commandments and he fulfilled them. He did not abrogate them at all. He affirmed the oneness of God and that there was only one God and he opposed idolatry. And, of course, as he then Uh, talks to the scribe who asks him the question about what is the greatest of all commandments. He begins at this point. He doesn't just go into saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. He begins with the Shema. He invokes that and says, hear, O Israel, the Lord, he is our Lord, and he is one. Also, the apostolic witness from the New Testament affirms that there is only one God. Paul to the Corinthians says there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came 
and from whom we live. And to the Ephesians, and we're studying the book of Ephesians on Sunday evening. Tonight we're going to be looking at the first chapter. We're going to be looking, as Chris preaches, on redemption as our gift and inheritance. In the fourth chapter, he says, Paul, to the Ephesians, there is one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in all. So there's no question that our Christian and New Testament understanding of God begins with the oneness of God. There's opposition to the doctrine of the Trinity, that is the triunity of God, from a theological and metaphysical standpoint, and also from a philosophic and scientific standpoint. Well, what do we mean by theological and metaphysical? We mean the doctrine of God and then those things that have to do with other than the physical world that we see. You see, other theistic faiths, when it comes to theology and metaphysics, Jews and Muslims reject our understanding of the triune nature of God. They believe in the absolute unity. They would say that God is simple and not complex in his personalities. And Christians affirm that he is simple in this standpoint, that he, he, does, he, he is one unity from the very, before the very beginning in eternity. He is who he is, and he is only who he is. He is simple in his nature, and we affirm that. But they take it to this point of absolute simplicity and say that he cannot then have any kind of complexity beyond that simplicity. They reject the deity of Christ. They reject the deity of the Holy Spirit that is inherent in the doctrine of the Trinity. So obviously there's a point of departure from the other theistic face in that respect. Theologically and metaphysically, there are some groups that call themselves Christians, but they do not affirm the Trinity. Unitarians and Universalists have rational opposition to it. They say there's no explicit reference in the Scripture that says Trinity, and they reject the deity of Christ. They reject miracles, and they reject the sacrificial atonement, or the atonement as being sacrificial. There are some that I would call non-Trinitarians in the Christian tradition. For example, I wouldn't say they're anti-Trinitarian as much as they're non-Trinitarian. For example, the apostolic Pentecostals, the Jesus-only people, they certainly believe in the deity of Jesus Christ, but they do not believe that he is, that, that there is the Father, that there is the Son, and that there is the Holy Spirit. They believe that this is Jesus manifesting himself in three different appearances. And then there are the cults. Some people want to group them into, into uh, the Christian church, but the Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, and Christian scientists. They do not affirm the Trinity, any one of those. So from a theological standpoint, there are people that depart from uh, our view of the Trinity that are theists, and there are others that proclaim to be Christians that do not agree with the, with the Bible, of course. And then there are other non-theistic views. All the non-theistic views that we covered a couple of weeks ago would disagree with the doctrine of the, the Trinity. Deist and finite goddists reject Christ's deity, although they accept the supernaturality of God. The rest of the worldviews that we talked about, pantheism, panentheism, and so, so on and so forth, relativism, do not affirm that God is supernatural and sovereign. So there are those, obviously, that object on the basis of theology and metaphysics. There are those that reject the Trinity based on philosophy, and scientific objections. And it's pretty simple. They say, as Thomas Jefferson did, that it is illogical. It, it's, it's illogical for something to be one and three at the same time. How can something be one and three at the same time? 
They also say there's no experiential evidence for it. We don't have any scientific proof. There's no historical evidence for it that substantiates it. And many of them will use arguments against the Trinity based on Scripture passages which they misinterpret. And you have heard some of these arguments. For example, John 3.16. God sent his what? He gave his only begotten son. And they would say, well, this begotten means that the son is not eternal, but he was created. That is a misunderstanding of the term begotten. In Colossians 1, he is the firstborn of all creation. And again, they would say this means that he had a beginning and is not eternal. And once again, that is misinterpreted. In John 1, the word was God and the word was with God in the beginning. He was God. They would say this does not mean that he was God. It's a, it means that he was God's possessive. And again, that is a misinterpretation. When Thomas looks at the Lord and, and Jesus says, okay, put your hand on my side and my fingers, and he says what? My Lord, my God. They say, my Lord is not calling him Lord. It's an expression like, oh, my Lord, my God. Again, that is a misinterpretation. When Jesus said he was not David's son, there are some that say he is explicitly denying his messiahship. Again, a misinterpretation. When Jesus said there's no one good except God, that he was applying that to himself. I'm not really good. That is a misinterpretation. When Jesus said the Father is greater than I, that this makes him subordinate in nature, unlike God himself, that is a misinterpretation. There are those that would take passages of Scripture out of context to refute the doctrine mainly of the deity of Christ, but also the Trinity. So, why the Trinity? Why do we believe the doctrine of the triune God? Well, first of all, because of its biblical soundness. He is the Son, God incarnate. So, the folks that oppose these doctrines that come out of a theistic tradition would say God the Father is God and he is all. But the Son is also God. Jesus Christ is deity. John 1.14, we beheld his glory, even the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 10, Jesus proclaimed, I and the Father are what? One. John 14, if you have seen me, he says to his disciples, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Colossians 1, Paul says that he is the image of the invisible God. He, that is Christ, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And then later in Colossians 2, he affirms this, and for him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. The author of Hebrews, whoever he may have been, puts it in the first chapter. He is the radiance of God's glory, as Brady preached a couple of weeks ago, and the exact representation of his nature. There is a biblical soundness to the deity of Christ. So God the Father is God, God the Son is God, and there is biblical evidence for the Holy Spirit being God himself. 2 Corinthians 3, the Lord is spirit. 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the Spirit of God dwells in you? It doesn't just say the Spirit, but it is the Spirit of the living God dwells in you. In Acts the third chapter, when Peter looks at Ananias and said, 
You have lied to the Holy Spirit, Ananias, and thereby doing, you have lied to God. In Matthew, the 12th chapter, Jesus proclaims, and also in Mark and in Luke, he proclaims that there is an unpardonable sin. And you might expect it to be, you know, blasphemy of God the Father or blasphemy of Jesus, the Son of God. But no, it is those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit and continue to do so, it is unpardonable. There is evidence in the Scripture then that both The Son, who is Jesus Christ, is God, and also the Holy Spirit. So why the doctrine of the Trinity? It answers a basic theological question that is inherent in the gospel. What is that question? It is this. God has a redemptive plan. It was established in eternity. And that redemptive plan is for humankind's sin to be forgiven, to redeem humans, and to save them. God intends to do this in history. In doing so, he requires a sacrifice to pay for human sin. And that sacrifice must be a human sacrifice because it is human sin. And yet it must be an infinite sacrifice that is spotless and unblemished, and therefore it must be a divine sacrifice. How can that be accomplished At the same time, with God maintaining control of the cosmos simultaneously. In other words, how can God be in control of the cosmos and this sacrifice that must be divine, human, and perfect in its nature be sacrificed at the same time? Well, there are at least five inadequate answers to that dilemma. One of those is, okay, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was a righteous man. He was a good man. Jesus was an extraordinarily good human being, but he was not God, deity, nor was he divine-like, God-like. You see, God chose him to be his representative, and he died on the cross as a good example for us. Now, that idea preserves monotheism. It preserves the idea that God is singular, and then he has this man that dies for our sin, but it rejects the biblical understanding of who Christ is. It rejects the biblical deity and divinity of Christ. It undercuts the sacrificial atonement. You see, it is not an infinite sacrifice. It is not an unblemished sacrifice. It is a good man, but no matter how good, every human being that has walked the face of this earth is a sinner. There is a second approach that is inadequate. We call it adoptionism. God adopted a human being. His name is Jesus. We call him the Messiah, the Christ. And he made him, he empowered him, he gave him his spirit when he adopted him, and he made him divine light to do his will. At his baptism, the Holy Spirit then descends upon him, or God's spirit descends upon him, and he empowers him with his spirit, which was withdrawn at the crucifixion. That theory of adoptionism preserves monotheism, but again, it rejects the deity of Christ, which is biblical. You see, the atonement alone in this doctrine is not adequate enough. It is still only a human sacrifice. There is a third approach to this dilemma of the gospel challenge, and that is modalism, that God appeared in modes as though he has three different faces. Two of them are masks, and then he puts the mask over one and removes it from another. You see, the father appeared in different modes. The father became the son. And then he became the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus 
was divine, yes, and Jesus was deity, but it was God appearing to be a man, but not really in human, not in human flesh. This preserves monotheism, yes, but the sacrifice, though it is a divine sacrifice, is not a truly human sacrifice. Because, you see, when the Father appeared as a son, he did not take on human flesh like we have. Not only that, there's some real problems, philosophic problems with this, with this point of view. Who was in control of the cosmos as the Father walked this earth as the Son during the incarnation and crucifixion? Who was it that raised the Son from the grave? And it gives us a schizophrenic God when Jesus goes into the wilderness and prays to the Father. He's talking to himself. There is a fourth position which is inadequate. It is called subordinationism. You may know it as Arianism. The Son, yes, existed before creation, but he is not eternal. You see, God created him before time began. The Son is divine, but he's not God himself. He is subordinate in nature. That is, his very nature is different from God's nature. Jesus is the incarnate Son of God, he is divine-like, but he is not God. This preserves monotheism, but the sacrifice, again, is inadequate because, you see, it is not God who is being sacrificed. It's not divine. And there's a final inadequate position, and that is obvious, tritheism. God the Father is God. God the Son is God. God is the Holy Spirit is God, and they're three separate gods. Jesus is the incarnate Son of God. He made the perfect sacrifice as deity and divinity, but the problem is, it violates the very first and second commandments. You see, you have three gods. It is polytheism. It does not preserve the biblical understanding of God as one, and it's inconsistent with biblical theism. So you see those other position, points of answering the question, the dilemma of the gospel challenge, the gospel problem, we don't have an answer. The biblical answer is triunity. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are all deity. They are one and same in the divine nature and their essence. So there's a foundational essence to God, a beingness to God. And it's not just a manifestation, but there are three separate personalities that are distinct with different functions in the Trinity. This preserves monotheism. God is still simple. He does not depend on anything else in the universe. He is a, he is a simple entity unto himself but he manifests himself in a complex relationship, in a community of love. Jesus is the incarnate Son of God who made the perfect, infinite, divine human sacrifice in obedience to his Father. There is a logical coherence to this doctrine, no matter what people say about it being irrational. What this doctrine does not say is this. It does not say that there are three persons and at the same time that only one person at a time existed in the same sense. No, it says that God is three persons in nature, combined in that nature. It does not say that God is three different essences or three different natures that are mixed together somehow. No, God is three persons with one deified nature. God is one in nature, and he is plural in personality. And there is a great mystery about this, but it's not a logical contradiction. 
You see, it can be understood and defended consistently through logic. How do these three persons function? Well, they interact together eternally. They have known each other from before eternity and interacted in perfect unity and community. They're eternally related. There never was when they were not. You notice I didn't use the word time. Even before time, there never was when they were not. They eternally existed in community. This is manifest in Scripture. This community is one of perfect love. And that is the basis of the relationship, the agape binding the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they perform distinct roles. What are those roles? The Father conveys His will to the Son. And then, as we know in John 5, He shows the Son how to obey Him. Jesus says, I watch the Father, and I basically, I do not do anything that I do not see the Father doing. My food is to do the will of Him who sent me. So the Father conveys His will to the Son, and the Son obeys the Father, Philippians 2. Though He thought it not robbery to be equal to God, He did what? He took on the form of man. He poured Himself out and took on the form of man and was obedient to death, even death on the cross. What does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit then glorifies the Son. So in this Trinitarian relationship, the unifying, I think, thing is redemption. The Father plans salvation. The Son accomplished it, and the Holy Spirit applies it. So I believe from a biblical standpoint, and to some degree a logical standpoint, we can affirm the doctrine of the Trinity as not being completely irrational. Is there any evidence for it? Can we ever fully understand the Trinity? And you know my answer is going to be what? No. It's beyond our comprehension. We can't prove it in a scientific laboratory. And you know what I've said, and I think you believe it as well. If we ever prove God in the scientific laboratory, we've simply made a human God. So it's not absolutely provable, but folks, analogies are useful. A number of analogies around us in the world suggest that the idea of the Trinity is not completely irrational. So, for example, in mathematics, critics say that the Trinity is mathematically impossible because... One plus one plus one equal what? Three. One plus one plus one do not equal one. But what about multiplication? One times one times one equals what? One. What about a geometric, you know, Daniel Webster put it this way. He said, we do not pretend to understand the arithmetic of heaven. Are you convinced yet? Well, I'm not convinced by mathematical formulas, no. There's a geometric analogy, and of course, that's the triangle. Every triangle is not only a three-sided object, but it's connected by three angles simultaneously together, and they always add up to how many degrees? 180. So there's an integrity, you see, in geometry, an analogy which is similar to the Trinity, but I'm not convinced by that either. What about common objects? Some of them give us an analogy that's similar. You take a prism and you take white light and you shine it through the prism and out the other side come an array of colors from red at the top through yellow and green to violet. The light itself, you see, that we see on this side is in fact an array of lights on the other side. What about a candle? 
A candle is three elements together, working together. The wax and the wick and the fire burning. I'm still not convinced. What about moral analogies? Love. Love involves at least two people. Love involves a love and a lover that is the beloved, and there must be a bond between the two, the spirit of love. The father loves the son, and the son is the beloved, and the bond is the Holy Spirit. That is reasonably convincing, but I'm not absolutely convinced. In chemistry, you know the analogy of water, ice, and steam. You have H2O in three different forms. The problem is they do not coexist in three forms. You see the analogy breaks down. Not entirely because there is what scientists call the triple point. The triple point where at 270.16 Kelvin points or degrees under 611.73 Pascal units of pressure in a contained environment at that point water can coexist the elements independent from one another as ice and steam and, in fact, water. Wow. Hmm. You know, that principle was used on the Mariner 9 mission in the early 70s. They used the triple point of water at exactly that pressure and exactly that temperature as a reference point to define the sea level on Mars. Still not convinced. But you see, there are a number of analogies that are very similar in the world out there. And then we come to the age of relativism and postmodernity and quantum physics. In quantum physics, there's much to inform us about the possibility of the nature of the Trinity. The particle wave duality that we have discovered in quantum physics. Not just light, but all matter. But especially as you look at light, is light a particle? Yes. Is life a wave? And the answer is what? Yes. It is a shower of photons, and at the same time, it is a wave. You see, it is both things at the same time. Quantum entanglement. In quantum physics, we're told that when a particle, subatomic particle, collides with another particle, a lot of the times they bounce off. But sometimes what happens when they collide, they fuse together, and then they separate. And when they do, then, forever and ever and ever, how far apart they are, they share identical qualities. It's amazing. And those subatomic particles, even though one may go off into space and be billions of light years away, if you affect this particle here, it affects that particle there in just the same way because they're all part of the same quantum field. Amazing. Quantum physics tells us about superposition. That is, it is possible, not only possible, but it is regular, for waves of quantum matter to superimpose themselves on top of each other in this way, so that the two waves together, the particles combine, and there are two different states that can act in opposite ways at the same time. Well, you see, that's impossible for us to imagine. It's impossible for us to imagine Somebody, for example, being able to turn to the left at one time, you can imagine that. Turn to the right at one time, we can imagine that. But to turn it left and to the right at the same time is impossible at the macro level, Newtonian physics. But quantum physics tells us that that is exactly what happens at the subatomic level. As a matter of fact, how many of you had an MRI? Okay. When you did, what happened? That MRI machine then looked into your body and it caused all of the hydrogen atoms in your body to spin in opposite directions at the same time so that that machine could look into your body. That is a product of quantum physics. Well, 
I'm still not absolutely convinced, but folks, these principles tell me something. It is possible for two things to be different together at the same time. It is possible for them to be permanently related, even though they may be billions of light years apart. It is possible for something to to be opposite to itself at the very same time. It's amazing. What about God? What about God? Why cannot God then be three and one at the same time? Why cannot God do things simultaneously, be in control of the cosmos, the eternal Father, and at the same time the Son sacrifices himself on the cross? Why cannot God be in multiple, multiple locations in relationship at the same time? You see, what science does to me is instead of negating and refuting the doctrine of the Trinity, it opens up possibilities that I never imagined could be. You see, I think in application, I'd say four things. Number one, there is a marvel to science. It really is. Modern science is so truly marvelous, it penetrates the deep mysteries of time and space. And yet scientists themselves will tell you that there are some things about the invisible elements of this world, the quantum matter that they simply do not understand. Nobody has ever seen a quark or an electron or a quantum wave. And yet in quantum physics, we see it has overturned our understanding of science. It defies the modern standpoint of saying we have confidence that we can master everything through science. We cannot know everything to an infinite detail. Something else that it tells me is what seemed impossible a hundred years ago is not only possible, but we find out is fundamental to the universe. You know, I've told this story before for you young folks. You know, when I was a kid, I never imagined. And it's partly a product of quantum physics and superconductors. Hmm. I never imagined that you could see the person that you were talking to on the phone at the same time. I know you think that's funny. <laughs> well, folks, if you have listened to what I said about, and I'm not, a, I'm not a physicist. What I said was very simple, and I exhausted my knowledge of quantum physics this morning, okay? <laughs> but stop and think about it. Is it really possible that someday we will be able to transport billions of light years matter through this principle of quantum integration? You say, nah, no, that's not, I'm telling you folks, a hundred years ago, nobody would have ever envisioned television. What science does is it opens up our mind to possibilities that we never thought could be. There's a marvel in science, and it is deep and mysterious. What it does is it points to future discoveries of even greater mysteries. And what it does for me is it it begs this question then. Why shouldn't we be open not just to other physical possibilities, but metaphysical possibilities? Why do we rely only on those things that we see in the test tubes when scientists don't do that? They try to predict probability at the quantum level of things they have never seen. There's a marvel to science, and it's mysterious. I'm here to tell you this morning that there's a greater marvel and mystery to the nature and being of God. The triune God is incomprehensible and inexplicable. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts, and his nature is not our nature. Who are we to suggest that we might understand completely his nature? Who are we when the Bible very clearly indicates that God is the Father and God is the Son and that God is the Holy Spirit? Who are we with our weak and feeble, infirm and sinful minds to suggest that the Bible is wrong? 
John Wesley put it this way, bring me a worm that can comprehend a man and I will show you a man that can comprehend God. Paul told Timothy, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, and taken up into glory. The mystery, the mystery, the mystery of godliness. Science is marvelous. God is a mystery. And we need to remember when we look at the Trinity, the purpose. What is the purpose of the Trinity? It's not to reveal the fullness of God's glory, this side of eternity. We cannot comprehend his glory. We know as sinful men and women, we cannot come into his presence with our sin because his glory is so powerful and awesome. We don't even begin to know a thimbleful of knowledge about the nature of God on this side of eternity. That's not his purpose, to reveal himself fully. God's purpose in his triunity is not to answer every skeptical question and challenge that a human mind can raise. We are but children, and he is our omniscient father, beyond our full comprehension. What is the purpose of the triunity? It is to fulfill the gospel challenge, to reveal himself as the God who loves us, the father who gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life to rescue. The Son who sacrificed Himself to redeem us from sin and death. The Holy Spirit then who applies that salvation to our life when we believe this morning, if you're watching on TV or if you are in this room and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. In your sin and your separation from God, there is a destiny that has been established and it is not with God. It is called hell. It is a matter of heaven or hell. It's a matter of being at home with the Father or being eternally separated from Him. And then quantum physics does not apply, folks. You can't be both things at the same time. We come to a point of destiny where we must answer that question. And when we do and we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior because the Father loves us and wants to reclaim us, He wants to rid us of our sin and give us eternal life. When we do that, the Holy Spirit then comes within us And applies the gift of salvation and he brings to our spirit the assurance that we are children of God even though we don't understand him. The last point is this. We need to believe first and then understand. God wants us to trust him. He could overwhelm us with all kinds of everyday miracles to demonstrate and he did use his son to present to to do to do miracles partly for that purpose. But he could do it in such a way that we are coerced to believe. You know, we would see miracles that are so obvious that God has to exist. We would be coerced to believe. He doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to manipulate us with absolute scientific proofs so that we respond by, as robots to some kind of intellectual kind of scientific formula. No, this isn't about arid theology. It's not about parsing our theology and, and understanding it philosophically and answering every scholastic question. I know that Aquinas built a very thorough systematic theology, most of which, not all, but most of which is sound biblically, and he began here. He said, I understand that I might believe, but let me tell you, I prefer Augustine's formula and Anselm's formula. I believe that I might understand. If we wait 
to understand everything about the nature of God before we make a decision to follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We will be waiting until the end of our life, and we will be waiting eternally in hell. The choice is very clear this morning. Do we believe? If we do, if we trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, he promises. His Holy Spirit comes within us, and he reveals himself through his scripture and through science and through nature. And he helps us to begin to understand who he is. And let me tell you, the beginning of that understanding is his love. He loves you so much that he gave his son and sacrificed him so that you might be redeemed from sin and death. Our invitation for you are watching online this morning. Now is the moment of decision. Now is the time. Now is the day of salvation. What will your decision be? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.